Brian Pettyjohn is a Senate Republican whip and represents the 19th Senate District. He joins the second floor to discuss Senate Bill 2, the Supreme Court confirmations, and to recap topics covered at the CSG East meetings in Baltimore. Welcome back to another episode of the Second Floor Podcast. My name is Matt Revel. I'm the Communications Director for the Senate Republicans. And today I have with me, here in his own office, Senator Brian Pettyjohn. He is the Senate Republican Whip and hails from the great 19th Senatorial District, sir. Hey there. How are you? I'm doing great. It's it's Thursday. We've finished session and... Uh, Oh, I'm not going to say we're we're off, but uh, you know, at, at least we don't have to come to Dover uh, until Tuesday. A little reprieve. From a little bit of reprieve. This, uh, it was quite a quite a busy week. It, it was a busy week, and um, followed by a lot that was going on. I think with me last weekend uh, at a conference. I think you said we we're going to talk about that. Yeah. Well, how about we just start right off with that? Okay. CSG East. Yeah. Uh, so you are. Well, how about you just kick it off? Sure. With your title and what you do with that great organization. Sure. There's a there's a organization that the state of Delaware. In fact, every state um, and some of the Canadian provinces are a member of. Actually, all the Canadian provinces uh, is the Council of governments uh, it's an organization that uh, it's it's for state governments um, they uh, do programming they do training they do leadership training uh, for all three branches of government uh, and all of the states in the Canadian provinces uh, I believe the um, city of Washington DC uh, is also a member of that as well but uh, uh, they are divided into regions. Uh, Delaware is in the East region. And I am co-chair of the Agriculture and Rural Affairs Committee uh, for CSG East. And you were appointed to that last year? Yes, right? I was. Yeah. Okay. Yep. So um, we just had a meeting uh, this past weekend over in Baltimore. Uh, we had, of course, myself, uh, the co-chair uh, from Pennsylvania. We had senators and representatives from New Hampshire, Massachusetts, Maryland, um, Connecticut, and Maine uh, were in attendance. And, and the subject was um, workforce, uh, workforce issues that the agriculture industry uh, is having right now. And uh, specifically, we talked about uh, in, in uh, um, cash crops, uh, fruits and vegetables, uh, horticulture, um, dairy and we had holly porter from uh the delmarva chicken industry or delmarva chicken association mm -hmm. uh talking about some of the labor problems in the poultry industry uh had a good discussion uh, talked about you know the the various issues that are out there uh what states can do we had somebody from uh the u.s department of labor there uh, talking about some of the some of the things the federal government is trying to do uh, to help not only with U.S. workers and getting them into the workforce, but the H-2A, H-2B visa process and some changes that might be coming with that as well. Um, there is some there was some talk about things that are trying to be put into this year's farm bill that's currently being debated over in D.C. But it was a really robust conversation. You know, the, the, the labor problem that our businesses here, and not just in agriculture, but across the sectors are, are looking at right now is, is not just a Delaware problem. It is, it is a regional problem. It's, it's really a, a national problem right now. A lot of people went out of the workforce uh, during COVID, and we just haven't seen those numbers come back up 
uh, the, way, the way they were before. A lot of those industries are really hurting right now uh, in terms of getting people uh, in there to work. Now, what kind of solutions did you hear from the experts that were there in attendance? You know, one of the things they're trying to do is is got to do a more development on some of the job links programs. Uh, employers that are looking for employees, uh, the state departments of labors uh, that uh, have, uh, you know, the unemployment system, uh, making sure that there's that good link between the unemployment system, the unemployment offices, departments of labor, and the businesses that are out there that need employees. A lot of times the businesses, and looking through the process, I can understand why, the businesses don't let the states know what type of job vacancies they have, Mm. Uh, especially your smaller businesses, because, I mean, honestly, they're trying to keep the doors open and trying to keep new stuff going on in the business because of the lack of employees. Uh, going through a long process, difficult, convoluted, uh, I mean, it's a federal government process of, of getting the information about the job vacancies out there so that they can do those links, it, it, it's not happening enough. Uh, so we talked about uh, with our uh, U.S. Department of Labor person there about ways to possibly streamline that process. She's going to go ahead and push it up there at Department of Labor. Uh, but, you know, people that are looking for jobs and employers that need employees just need a better way, a more efficient way to link up, especially in, in, in instances where those people who are looking for jobs are currently uh, receiving unemployment benefits. Well, very good. Yeah. I mean, I mean, so agriculture obviously is the number one industry here in Delaware. Yeah. So we'll be following the developments from that. And, you know, we have a great representative here from Delaware <laughs> representing us there at CSGE's yeah. uh, in you. <laughs> so anyway, um, so so moving on, as I mentioned at the top of this, you know, we've had a pretty busy week yeah. here in the General Assembly. Uh, Senate Bill 2 mm-hmm. was debated on past the Senate long party lines. Uh, what was that? Tuesday. Tuesday. Yeah, yeah. Tuesday. And uh, what that bill does, it implements a permit to purchase process for anyone who wish- wishes to uh, buy a handgun mm-hmm. in the state of Delaware. Now, Senate Bill 2, like I said, it was introduced initially a couple weeks ago, I believe. Right. There was a substitute that was released the same day. Well, yeah, the substitute was released on On Tuesday. um, Tuesday. So what were the differences, right quick, uh, between the substitute and the original? original? So uh, there were two changes. Uh, First, uh, it changed the permit length. So when you go through the process, obtain your permit. Originally, the permit was good for six months. Uh, It stretched out that uh, permit validity to one year uh, before we had to go through the renewal process. Uh, The second thing that it did was to um, take the implementation timeline. So originally it was supposed to be, you know, upon signing by the governor, it was supposed to be uh, going into effect six months after. It actually extended that to a year and a half, uh, 18 months. So uh, those were the two things that the substitute did. Uh, And what that ended up doing was significantly reducing the fiscal note on mm-hmm. it, especially for the first uh, first year. Uh, your out years are still uh, pretty expensive, uh, upwards, I think, $7.5 million, right, yep. with a 2% increase uh, projected every year, which I think is actually going to go up. And honestly, I think the fiscal note's a little short, too, based on some of the assumptions that were on there about the training classes uh, and the vouchers that are going to be uh, – uh, available for that for low-income families for training, but uh, you know those were the those were the two changes that were made, 
And honestly, it was it was in, a, in an effort to reduce that fiscal note. Yeah, so despite the changes that were made that, like you said, affected the fiscal note and stuff, our caucus, like we had with the initial um, bill that was introduced and mm-hmm. also in the previous iterations over the past couple of years, obviously major constitutional questions. Right. Our Senate attorney, Anthony Del Colo, uh, he was called as a witness and mm-hmm. articulated many of our uh, or those points effectively. But um, just for the purposes of this recording, since he's not we'll in here, we'll give you the reader's digest yeah, version yeah, give here. The- <laughs> um, so, so look, you know, we in the Delaware Constitution, a lot of people don't understand. Uh, we do have a right to keep and bear arms in the Delaware Constitution as well. Everybody knows about the Second Amendment, and the Second Amendment is what really hits the news all the time. Uh, but Delaware also has a uh, right in our constitution uh it says a person has the right to keep and bear arms for the protection of home self family state and for hunting and recreational use uh, so there's actually 12 different uh rights that are protected there um you know the the right to keep all of those things that i listed and the right to bear for all of those things listed um, and for a a piece of legislation to come that says you need to uh take a class you need to get fingerprinted you need to, or you know, the, the state bureau of identification is going to check with local law enforcement to see if there's anything that uh, they think you shouldn't have a, a firearm for. Um, you know, wait for that uh, permit to be uh, returned to you, uh, for your permit to be granted before you can exercise a right to purchase uh, a firearm it is a problem. Uh, I mean, it delays it. It sets a, a bar in front of somebody being able to exercise a constitutionally protected right here in Delaware. And, um, you know, one, I, I don't know, it, it's really difficult for me to wrap my head around the, the, the government having to grant you a permit in order to exercise a right um, out, out of, outside of something reasonable. I mean, and, and reasonable being, well, let's do a background check, make sure that you're not a person prohibited. Okay, that's, you know, that's, that's something that, you know, is, is something that's reasonable. And they can be completed and often are that day. That pretty like much instantly. Within like 30 minutes. Yeah. Right? Oh, usually it's within a few minutes. Yeah. Um, and, you know, uh, we can discuss um, the, uh, the FTAP bill uh, that, was, that was passed last year. The, the FTAP last year um, did a lot of what the proponents of this bill wanted it to do. And that is not only check the FBI database, but also look at information that hasn't necessarily made it to the FBI database, to the National Cr- uh, Inst- Criminal Instant Check System. Um, things like uh, flags for uh, domestic violence, uh, a history of domestic violence calls to somebody address, uh, somebody's address. Those things, uh, doing FTAP, that means that the state of Delaware, our State Bureau of Identification is gonna be doing those checks as State Bureau of Identification, I'm going to say SBI from now on, uh, SBI has access to all of that information uh, because Delaware is one of, I think, the only state that has an integrated com- uh, criminal justice computer system. So every police agency in the state of Delaware, uh, whether it's the smallest town up to the state police, uses the same system uh, to enter and lodge uh, the complaints that come in, uh, for the records, for investigations, all that's contained in one system. So, you know, an officer in Georgetown enters something in, 
if somebody gets stopped in Dover or Wilmington and they run a check to see what kind of information is on that individual, that comes up. And it's instantaneous because it's one system. Um, so, you know, the, these are the integrated systems we have here. And that's the kind of information that FTAP does. And this is the kind of information that, as well, this permitted purchase would do. So we already have it. What this does, it puts a time delay on somebody's ability to go and purchase a firearm uh, initially. And then, of course, you have to get that renewed. Um, but one of the concerns that we've had and, and I've heard a lot from uh, are women that say, you know, well, you know, if, if I need to purchase something to protect myself or, or my children, my family um, from a stalker or an abuser, now they got to go through this process. Um, and in our neighboring state of New Jersey, there was a case a few years ago where a woman had a restraining order against somebody. That restraining order had been violated on numerous occasions. There's actually, I believe, a warrant out for that person's arrest. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, she had applied for it. 37 days later, that person uh, attacked her and stabbed her to death. So, you know, if she had had that firearm to be able to protect herself, we it might have been a different story. But, um, you know, in, in, in that case, you know, somebody was waiting for the government to give them permission to be able to protect themselves, and it ended up in, an, in a fatality of that person that needed protection. Uh, I mean, that's just just one of the the numerous concerns that we have around that. Uh, I think it sets a bad precedent if we uh, have to gain permission from the government to exercise a right. You know, um, could you imagine if somebody introduced a bill to make it so you had to have mandatory training before you did a letter to the editor, mm. or published on Facebook, published a blog? Uh, if you wanted to go to church, you had to, the government said, well, you need our permission first to do that. Uh, you need to take a class. You need to have a check done. You know, the, these are things, I mean, some people think that might be a little bit absurd, but those are rights that are guaranteed in the constitution, just as the right to keep and bear is guaranteed in our constitution. The very next amendment actually yes. to many of the points that you just made. Mm -hmm. Well, I think it's safe to say, Senator, that we weren't surprised by the outcome no. of how uh, the votes fell mm -mm. on this particular bill in the Senate. But so the, the fight is going to be in the House. Yeah. Um, there are a number of questions. If it has the votes, if it's going to get out of the Appropriations Committee, I know it's been assigned to judicial, mm -hmm. the House Judicial uh, Judicial Committee. Right. Um, but it's got to, with a sizable fiscal note, it also has to go through House Appropriations as well. And this is not something that was included in the governor's recommended budget. Right. So it wasn't part of the door openers that have been discussed in, in JFC. Uh, they still have markup to do, and we still have defects to come in. Um, and there are a lot of bills out there with fiscal notes right now. So, um, you know, if, if defect doesn't come up, in fact, if defect comes down, because uh, right now it's lower than what the governor's recommended budget was, so there has to be a little trimming there. Um, it kind of go the, the the question becomes okay, what are we going to trim? You know, if if this bill comes in, the question is okay, what's that's what and that's in the governor's budget could be cut, or what other bills that we pass this year that have a fiscal note, you know, are we going to end up not passing? Uh, you know, there, there's just a lot of questions. I mean, we only have an, a certain amount of money. We're not like the federal government that just prints money when we want to. Um, you know, we have to operate within our budget. We actually have to budget no more than 98% of what uh, DFAC projects that we're going to be getting for the next year. So, you know, these, these are all concerns, especially with a bill that has a, a, as large of a price tag as this does. 
So I said the fight's going to be in the house if you're out there and you want to see this bill um, not pass. Mm -hmm. Definitely would encourage everyone to reach out to the representative. Yeah, reach out to your opinion. representatives over there. Reach out to and reach out to the committees as well. I mean, it's going to like you said, it's it's in House Judicial Committee. Um, so those members of the committee are going to be having a hearing on it at some point in time. And, uh, and then the House Appropriations Committee as well, because that bill has to go under consideration and, and, and be funded. Um, so that, that may be an opportunity as well to, um, to express uh, some concern about the fiscal piece of it. So the next and final topic that I wanted to discuss yesterday, Wednesday, um, the Senate voted to confirm two new justices to the Delaware Supreme Court. Yep. Uh, the first was Abigail Legros, and the second was Christopher Griffiths. Mm -hmm. um, now, it's two members out of a five-member Supreme Court. We don't have a nine-member Supreme Court right. like the federal. So, right. you know, two out of the five members of the Supreme Court are, are now new. None of whom are from Sussex or Kent County, rather. Kent County or Sussex County, but well. yeah. <laughs> but, but both of which are from Newcastle County. How but, about that? Right, yeah. yeah. So, but to that point, uh, I know... I think every member of the Senate received a extraordinarily high number of communication from members of the Kent County Bar, well, the Bar Association throughout the state of Delaware, and just from members of the legal community, uh, expressing concern about the lack of geographical diversity, mm -hmm. particularly that once or now that the, uh, the two new members have been uh, confirmed, they'll, they'll be sworn in that there will be no justice from Kent County. That's right. That's right. And uh, that's because, um, of course, the two vacancies, one was uh, Judge Tamika Reeves, who went on to, I believe, the Third Circuit yes. uh, Federal Court, and then uh, Justice Jim Vaughn, uh, who retired after a very long and distinguished career in serving the people of the state of Delaware within the court system, the Supreme Court, uh, Superior Court, and of course in private practice before that. Uh, but uh, of course, uh, uh, Justice Vaughn was from Kent County. Uh, uh, Justice Reeves was from Newcastle County. So instead of doing a Newcastle County appointee and a Kent County appointee, uh, the governor submitted two names, both of which were from Newcastle County, which uh, caused the initial concern uh, about the nominees and about the lack of uh, geographic diversity within that court. Now. Well, it, was, it was a break of precedent. It was a break is, of precedent. Yeah, yeah. It's, it, it's something that had been done uh, by every governor. There has not been a time that uh, since the court was reorganized back in the 50s that there has not been a member, sitting member, uh, from from a from a county, there's always been at least one member from every county on the uh, on the state supreme court. Uh, so, like you said, that was just one of the initial concerns mm -hmm. about, I guess, more so the process in general. Right. Um, but Chris Griffiths specifically had some additional concerns. Mm -hmm. um, why don't you outline those? Because uh, I know you and other members of our caucuses had had. Uh, Good conversations with him, and yep. by all accounts, great guy, great, great family man, you know. Um, but there was a glaring mistake that yeah. he is open about. He made a mistake. He he was pulled over and arrested for DUI at the end of January of mm -hmm. this year. Mm -hmm. Down in uh, Sussex County. Yes, yeah. yeah. And um, that was pled down to a reckless driving, alcohol-involved charge, to mm -hmm. which he pled guilty um, on at the end of March, was just a couple weeks prior to his nomination coming from, in. Uh, coming in from Governor Carney. Um, so that was one 
one of the I think probably and I don't want to put words in your mouth, but definitely was one of the more glaring um, yeah. concerns that we had. Yeah. So you know, I I and and I've talked to him a couple of times. I talked to him here in my office uh, last week. Uh, I spoke to him. I think we had a half hour meeting here. Uh, spoke to him by phone earlier on this week as well. And and really, my concern was four different areas. Of course, the initial concern we already covered that um, you know there was no Kent County. Uh, right. representation uh, second is the is the DUI and, um, and and the fact that you know during the confirmation process and and I'm not sure how long he's got until he needs to complete the classes but possibly into his investor journal the Supreme Court um, you know he'll still be technically on probation uh, because the the court mandated uh, programs had not been completed yet uh, so that, of course, that was the second. Third, and and it's it's a little bit less of a of a issue only because um, this has happened before. Uh, he had never served on the bench before. Uh, the, he had not served in uh, family court, court of chancery, superior court, a- any of the courts here in in Delaware. And, and the reason why we like to see those is because we can review the opinions that those individuals write uh you know those judges uh, those family courts even a you know master in chancery or something like that uh, or a superior court commissioner you know they write opinions they analyze the law they analyze the parties and what the parties say and they come to an opinion and an order that is put in writing and and the decisions made and a lot of times you can see a f- person's thought process behind that especially if they're a judicial thought process, you know, how they're analyzing the law, how they are weighing the two sides of a case, you know, how they're going through all this information and reaching a conclusion of law uh, and, uh, and, and conveying that to the parties. And of course, you know, once that's done, a lot of times there's an appeal and it's always interesting to see whether or not those opinions are upheld on appeal or if the uh, Supreme Court disagrees with it, either sends it back or outright reverses mm-hmm. it, which, you know, we, we've seen before uh, in, in cases, uh, you know, that's why the Supreme Court's there. They're the appellate court. A lot of times they hear the cases uh, de novo or, or, you know, at new, you know, kind of argued fresh in front of them. Um, so, you know, the, these these are things that we look for. And if a person hasn't served on the bench, you know, absent those opinions, a lot of times uh, attorneys, well, they like to write. So they publish uh, articles in, uh, you know, the bar association uh, magazines. You know, they, uh, you know, they, they publish things uh, regarding some of the specialty practices that they that they have. Blogs. Uh, you know, they give speeches. Um, you know, some of them have written other magazines, articles, books, contributed to books, uh, contributed to uh, you know law review articles. You know, something to to again get a look into the mind of the individual prior to them coming before you and saying, hi, I want to, you know, apply, I w- I'm coming before you to, you know, say, I, I want to be a member of, of your court. Uh, and, and kind of, you know, at that point in time, kind of ta- tailoring what they're telling you based on what they want to do. Um, you know, some of the best things to look at are things from like 10 or 15 years ago before they even thought about, uh, you know, wanting to be a judge right uh you get you get kind of a true uh view on how a person is and a lot of times you kind of you know if you get 
you know, a decade or so worth of writings, you, you see an evolution of, of how they write and, and how their thinking is as well. And, you know, you're able to, you're able to judge a person and, and, and see, you know, what their, what their temperament is, uh, you know, what issues are important to them. Uh, you know, what they really delve into and how objectively or subjectively they present uh, some of these issues. Um, we didn't have that with um, Mr. Griffiths either. Um, he, it, it, was, it was very late on material. In fact, the one thing that he did reference in his supplemental questionnaire, there was no copy of it. So, you know, there wasn't a lot for us to go on. You know, in talking to him, look, he's a, he's a good guy. Uh, he admitted to his mistakes. Um, he was embarrassed by it. You know, he wanted to move on, and and I I support that. Um, I just think it wasn't enough time had elapsed between the incident that happened and him coming before us to get a seat on the highest court. Uh, so those those all those factors, you know, one single factor we might have been able to let it slide. All four of those factors, it was it was just too much for me to give him an affirmative vote. Yeah. Well. Um like I mean, I, said, I wish him well. Yeah, and, yeah and, definitely wish both of yeah. them luck. And, and you know, yep. it, just to, to contrast, um, uh, the the Honorable Legro, she um, she had been a master in chancery, a lot of opinions written. She had been on Superior Court, um, a lot of opinions there. She had actually sat. Uh, there's a rule that allows uh, uh, somebody to sit as a as a vice chancellor, even if they're not. For some cases, uh, she sat in that. As well, too. So there was a, a, a lot of material on her. Uh, a judge that we did, um, that we confirmed a few weeks ago, uh, that came from uh, the Attorney General's office. Um, you know, he had not been a judge, but he wrote a lot of articles on things. So, you know, those are the types of things that we like to see. Uh, when you have somebody that has got some of these issues and just there's nothing for us to really look at. You know, that's, that's why we, that's, that's why we have some of those problems. Yeah. Well, and I mean, and typically uh, speaking of precedent, I mean, most of the time these votes are unanimous Yeah. Um, because look, I, like I said, the governors uh, in the past and even governor Carney up, I think uh, you, you guys argued up until yesterday, mm-hmm. um, all the nominees typically are, I mean, they're very intelligent, straight shooters, uh, they have a very even-keeled vision of the law, how they interpret it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so regardless of party affiliation that they may be, our caucus and the Democrat caucuses, um, caucus and the past have all voted to support uh, to yeah. support uh, the nominees. Yeah. But that, and that differed yesterday. And it did. And look, Delaware courts, there's something special and unique about the Delaware courts. Uh, we are looked at not just by people in Delaware – but the eyes on Delaware courts are, are worldwide. Yeah. And, and it's really because of the fact that we are the corporate home uh, to so many companies, to so many global companies. Uh, re- one of the reasons being is that our court system, our, our court of chancery, uh, our Supreme Court, they have always been very predictable in how they're going to rule on cases. And, and companies like predictability. Um, because, you know, they know how to govern themselves. They know how to have the proper relationship with shareholders, with other companies. Um, you know, there is, there is good case law that's built. 
around mergers and acquisitions, uh, things that are important to corporations that we have a very well-established case law, well-established corporate code for. And, and if cases do go to our courts, whether it's the Court of Chancery or appealed up to our state Supreme Court, then it, it's a very predictable scenario after that. Um, predictability being especially, you know, how our justices interpret the laws that us as the General Assembly pass uh, and the rails that we put around uh, corporate governance. And um, that's something we have to protect. Um, you know, not only of that corporate side, but, you know, from a, from a civil and from a criminal side as well. Um, you know, we, we have a very good court. We've always had a very good court here in Delaware that does not try as a, as a court to legislate from the bench. Uh, they've been very deferential to what the General Assembly has intended in passing laws, uh, even if uh, there are times that they don't think it's the right thing to do. Uh, the law is the law, and that's their job, is to rule on, fa on, on matters of law or, or matters of equity in, in terms of uh, what happens in the Court of Chancery. So, and, and they've done a, a, a stellar job of doing that over the years. Well, very good. Well, Senator, thank you for taking time uh, after session yeah. Thursday uh, discussing these matters. Just kind of like a little weekly wrap-up, another wrap-up. For our listeners out there on mm -hmm. um so look we'll keep you updated on senate bill two as it moves through the general or doesn't move through i guess i mean we maybe next week we'll have some more answers like i said it's going to no, be the and, house and look, judiciary but you know senate uh, bills have a life of two years mm -hmm. so even if it doesn't make it before june it's still alive if there is some horse trading that goes on during the off season uh, money starts falling from the sky or something like that, uh, we never know what's going to happen. But, uh, you know, it, the, these bills that uh, people are opposed to that seem to be stalled, uh, you've got to watch it until the end of the General Assembly, which in this case is going to be June of uh, the end of June 30th of 2024. Um, that's when our General Assembly ends. So, you know, even if it doesn't move until if it doesn't move until through this June, it could still move January through June of next year. So, you know, you've got to be vigilant. We, we are always vigilant on these bills, uh, but the public needs to be vigilant on the bills that either they support or oppose as well. Some arm twisting could yeah. be done. We've seen that before. Yep. Anyway, all right, Senator, well, thanks for stopping in. Sure thing. Yep. Thank you. The Second Floor Podcast is recorded and produced by the Delaware State Senate Republican Caucus. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, and Twitter for username DESenateGOP and at SenateGOP.Delaware.gov. <laughs>